You're listening to the Florida Bar Podcast, brought to you by the Florida Bar's Practice Resource Center, Legal Fuel, produced by the broadcast professionals of the Florida Bar. Welcome to the Florida Bar's Legal Fuel Podcast, brought to you by the Practice Resource Center of the Florida Bar. We're so glad you're joining us. This is Christine Bilbury. I'm the director of the Practice Resource Center and the host of the show, which is being recorded from our studio in Tallahassee, Florida. Our goal at the Practice Resource Center is to assist Florida attorneys with running the business side of their law practices. We focus on a different topic each month and carry the theme through our website with related tips, videos, and articles. So back in the 1960s, doctors were not yet aware that physical exercise could improve cardiovascular health. Flash forward to today, and scientists are proving that with the right mental training, we can change the structure of our brains, resulting in improved memory, strengthened focus, better decision-making, and even reduced stress and anxiety. Many of these studies have been conducted on groups of people who work in what are identified as high-demand professions, including soldiers, athletes, and we know that the practice of law easily falls into this high-demand designation. So today, we have brought in an expert to educate us on how we can integrate brain training into our lives in the same way we use a regular exercise program to strengthen our bodies. Dr. Amishi Jha is a professor of psychology at the University of Miami. She serves as the Director of Contemplative Neuroscience for the Mindfulness Research and Practice Initiative, which she co-founded in 2010. She received her PhD from the University of California, Davis, and postdoctoral training at the Brain Imaging and Analysis Center at Duke University. Dr. Jha's work has been featured at TED, NATO, the World Economic Forum, and the Pentagon. She has received coverage in the New York Times, NPR, uh, Time Magazine, and Forbes. She is also the author of the national bestseller, Peak Mind, Find Your Focus, Own Your Attention. Welcome to the show, Dr. Jha. It's great to be here. I am so delighted that you have agreed to come on the podcast because I have had so many people recommend your book to me. And one of the people in my life who I have the deepest respect for is my older sister. She's an executive at a large corporation. And she called me and said, you have to read this book. Our whole senior management team has read it. It works. And we can't stop talking about it. Then a member of uh, the Florida Bar's Mental Health and Wellness of Florida Lawyers Committee emailed me and said, you have to read this book. It works. And it kept popping up. So I, I just surrendered and I loved it. So I read it and I have to say, I really like how you take the reader along through this rigorous scientific journey that you and your team traveled. And along the way, you invite us into your life because you're dealing with all of the same things that we are. You talk about having everything you ever wanted, career, marriage, children, knowing that while you were stressed, you didn't want to give anything up. Because I think that's the advice so many people will say, well, you know, you need to lighten up your plate, get something off. So you wanted an approach to make it all work, to make your life better. So I want to know what prompted you two things uh, to devote your life to the science of attention. And also, instead of just having another peer reviewed study that a little hard to digest for non-scientists, you put all of your findings in this very readable form that is so accessible to the public. Yeah. Yeah. Well, thank you to your sister, because I'm really glad we're having this <laughs> opportunity uh, to speak and Absolutely. So the first question regarding why do I do what I do, basically, I think is what you're what you're asking about. 
And, you know, just, t- just a quick history of me. So I, as you mentioned, and I appreciate you giving my uh, quick bio, uh, I run a lab that studies the brain's attention system. And that's, that's my job. That's what I do. And I've always been interested in, in, um, attention. Like throughout my life, I've been interested in attention. But in the early days, I thought I was going to be a medical doctor. So we're talking, you know, growing up, high school, uh, even early days of college, I thought I was going to be a medical doctor. But I realized quickly, no, it's not for me. I'm not going to do well in a hospital environment. It just didn't make me feel like I didn't have the healer vibes, I guess. And so what ended up happening, because I have a lot of grit, is that I was volunteering in a in the hospital because I'd committed to doing it, even though I was starting to feel like this isn't my path. I happened upon a rotation in a brain injury unit. And that sort of changed the course of my life because I ended up getting to know some of the patients, uh, and in particular, one patient who was there for quite a long period of time. And what he described to me was really mind-boggling, so to speak. He was, I thought, a quadriplegic. But then over the course of the months that he had been in the hospital, uh, one day, all of a sudden, you know, my job was to take him out for fresh air. And so they'd, they'd be this fancy looking wheelchair because he was not able to move at all. One day he was in a different wheelchair. And now he was actually using his own arm movements, hand movements to move the lever to guide himself. And I found that amazing. It was like, wow, you know, this, this, these therapies are really helping. And what he told me was that beyond the daily physical therapy that he was getting at night, he would basically fall asleep by closing his eyes and visualizing moving his hand in that way to press the lever for his wheelchair. And he said, this just gives me extra mental training. I'm I'm changing my brain. I'm exercising my brain to do this better, which I thought was so cool because I think that, that now, you know, fast forward to my current life, we now know that mental exercise in this form is commonly used by elite athletes and, and all of us, frankly, who want to up our game in some way. Golfers will talk about this. Uh, tennis players will talk about this. You're visualizing the, the swing or the, or the pitch if you're into baseball, whatever it is. And that ch- changed my life because it made me realize that the brain is an amazingly cool organ. And I kind of became um, transfixed on understanding how the brain works and then really inspired by that initial contact with the patient, understanding if and how we can change the brain by actions that we engage in privately on our own in the same way a physical exercise routine, as you had mentioned, may transform the body. And it ended up that out of all the different brain systems, the one that is most likely to recalibrate and alter the functioning of the entirety of the brain is human attention. So part of my passion to understand what we would call neuroplasticity, the ability of experience to change the brain, uh, really led me to the brain system of attention and then really trying to understand how we can not only understand how attention works, but how to strengthen it so that it works better. Uh, Because most of us probably, like me myself, have that sense that I could pay attention better to my life and what I'm doing. And you, that's an amazing illustration. I'm glad that you added that because you you carry us through the book like that. And I want to say it's so readable. It's almost like part memoir, part, uh, you know, uh, scientific study. <laughs> but I think that you bring all the evidence in a way that is just, it's very easy um, for non-scientists to understand. So I really appreciate that about you. And at the very beginning of the book, you make a bold statement. You tell us that we are missing 50% of our lives. So why is this happening? And 
where are we? What are we doing during all this lost time? Yeah, it is a bold statement and it is a wake up call. And, you know, and part of the reality is that most of us are not aware that we're not there for 50% of the time. And I, I would just ask anybody that's listening to our voices to use it as a challenge, that number, to use it as a challenge to see if in the time that this, the duration of this podcast, if you cut the minutes in half, uh, the notion would be that you're gone for that many minutes. Now, the podcast may be on, you may be intending to listen, but somehow you're not really there. And that's what I'm talking about. I'm talking about something called mind wandering. And it sounds like an innocuous enough term. You go for a walk, you let your mind wander. You know, when you're walking the dog, you just let the mind go where it will. That is not what I'm talking about. What I'm talking about is off-task thoughts during an ongoing task or activity. So there is something we intend to do, but our mind is not there. And now there are there's an entire field of research actually devoted to understanding the mechanics of mind wandering. And that's what led to that 50% number. Some of these early studies were done where they would just have a group of volunteers to participate in research. And they would tell those volunteers that they're going to ping them on their cell phone during normal waking hours. And they'll ask them a couple of questions. The first being, what are you doing right now? What is the goal of what you're doing? You know, it could be anything that happens, writing, writing a report, reading a book, having a conversation making dinner, whatever it is. And the second question is, where is your attention right now? Is it in the thing you're doing or not? And only half of the time were people reporting that their attention was in the task at hand. So where did it go in those other moments? Well, that relies on understanding this other capacity that is such a profound capacity that the mind has, something called mental time travel. So I like to always describe this, and, and and I appreciate you noting that in the book because it was important to me that you know anybody should be able to understand what I'm talking about uh, because this is a common human phenomenon. But think about like an MP3 player as sort of a metaphor of what I'm about to say. And the mind is sort of the metaphor is the MP3 player. So we are able to so easily rewind the mind. And what I mean by that is is go to the past, reflect on experiences. Uh, savor what's occurred already. And we learn from this. It's a very valuable thing we can do is rewind the mind. In fact, we'd have no sort of living history of our lives and all of our knowledge if we couldn't rewind in that way. And we can also fast forward. We can actually go to the future, plan, kind of suss out what we might do next. Very, very important for our decision-making and organizing our lives. But oftentimes, we are in rewind and fast forward without our knowledge. And we slip into this, not always productively. So oftentimes we aren't simply rewinding the mind to reflect on something important. We're we're ruminating on events that have already happened. And we're not fast forwarding always to be in the most uh, productive, forward thinking, planful mode. We're actually catastrophizing and worrying about events that frankly, they, they haven't happened yet and they may never happen. They're made up in our mind. So that 50% number is a wake-up call, and it's an invitation to notice in your own life when you actually aren't in the moment doing the thing that you want to do. And that leads us sort of directly into the solutions that we started pursuing, which was, okay, if fast-forwarding and rewinding is a problem and people are doing it in this dysfunctional manner and doing it even more over periods of high stress, well, how do we get them to just stay in play? How do we get them to be in the moments of their lives so that they can actually do the thing that they want to do? And it ends up that out of all the different training modalities that we have explored to improve attention, 
the one that tended to show up over and over again to be able to stay in play, if you will, and guide people so that their attention was available to them was mindfulness training. And so that those are the kinds of solutions we've pursued with many high demand groups uh, to see if we can train individuals and benefit their own attention so that we can protect against that very common 50% mind wandering number. And I think it's really important that you are saying that was the only one that worked because you talk about this in your book, because we've all heard about brain training apps or positivity training. Um, I like to start my day doing the New York Times spelling bee. I don't know if it's improving my brain. It's helped my Scrabble game. But <laughs> can you specifically tell us, because I think there's people out there doing a lot of things that they think are helping and it's made be a complete waste of time. And you point out there are some things that even harm us when we are trying to strengthen our mental acuity. Can you talk about some of those things that are still out there? Yeah. I mean, I would say that we're in a very good moment right now where the knowledge that you can actually train the brain to change the brain for better is a really good thing. This is not something that 200 years ago, somebody would have even thought. Like you were saying a moment ago, 200 years ago, you saw somebody running down the street, you'd think (laughs) they're being chased, right? Like there's something wrong. There's a fire, a bear, something's going on. Now, of course, we know this is something we do regularly. Uh, we don't have as clear of an idea of what to do regularly with regard to our our uh, mind and improving our, our mental well-being, but we're getting answers. And that's what the pursuit was with um, the work in my lab. And yes, I would say just to be completely full disclosure, I was a skeptic regarding mindfulness. To me, it was sort of this touchy-feely thing that, uh, and people can't see me right now, but if they saw me, they'd see I'm an Indian woman. So there's this whole cultural aspect where, of course, I knew about mindfulness and meditation growing up because it was the thing my family did. Um, I'm actually was I was actually born in the town that Gandhi's ashram is in. Um, so this notion of of cultivating a mind through meditation was very very common. But I'm a hard nosed Western trained neuroscientist, and I just couldn't square the two. So I was kind of like, yeah, that's great. Glad mom and dad do it. Not for me. But what we realized was that uh, all these other things that you described. Uh, technological solutions, light and sound devices, brain training apps, uh, mood inductions. These were things that might give a temporary boost on some occasions, but they were not able to protect against uh, challenges that attention will face over high stress intervals. They just didn't do the trick. And and the thing about something like brain training games, and I would say there's been a lot more, there's a proliferation of work uh, done on this. And, and don't give up your... Um, the the crossword if you enjoy doing that. Don't give up anything that you're doing that you enjoy because, you know, joy and fulfillment are an important part of life. But if you're doing it expressly for the purpose of training your brain and in particular strengthening your attention, it's probably not going to have too much of a benefit for that. Um, but you will get better at doing the crossword if you keep doing it or any kind of brain training game. For sure, we improve in the game. But it's the generalizability. How does doing that kind of brain training advantage my ability to listen to evidence, pour through uh, a report, understand what my spouse may be experiencing? How do we bring it to our real lives uh, so that our attention is available to us in everything we do as professionals, as human beings? That was the That's the challenge point with a lot of brain training. And, and so it ends up that mindfulness, as we can talk about, does advantage our ability and it has this generalizable quality. The thing you mentioned about there's some things we might be doing that could actually harm us um, is something to point out. And this I learned in a pretty big way through a partnership we had with the with the U.S. Army. Um, the U.S. Army has uh, implemented and had at the time that I began this work, implemented positive psychological training. So essentially, 
helping people cultivate more and more positive mood in their lives as a way to help soldiers build psychological resilience. It sounds like a wonderful thing. Building psychological resilience for all of us would be a great thing to do. Positive psychology is a very good thing to do. And so it made sense that the Army would want to pursue this. But my question, because I study attention and I understand that under high stress and demanding circumstances, attention will get depleted, was how does positive psychology and these kind of manipulations work when people are under protracted periods of high demand and high stress? And so we tested it out. We actually had a group of soldiers. Um, we divided them into, into two groups. One got a mindfulness training program, another a positivity training program uh, offered by experts in those areas. And we tested them and offered this training over a period of intensive demand, pre-deployment training. And what we found was actually the positivity training over a high demand interval was worse than nothing at all. It actually significantly depleted attention, whereas the mindfulness training kept things sort of steady and stable and no degradation. Now, that depletion in attention is a very common phenomenon that most of us will experience over high stress, high demand intervals. So in the lives of legal professionals, think about just even preparing for a big case, let alone actually being in the middle of a trial. And of course, I'm speaking completely out of turn. I'm a neuroscientist, not a legal professional, but I can imagine this is the case. And some of my dear colleagues are in this field. So hearing from them. So over high stress, high demand, attention will become depleted. It's vulnerable. And what we saw with the positivity training, where people are aiming to cultivate positive mood, is that it it did the same thing. It depleted attention. So the puzzle was, why would this be happening? Why would cultivating a positive mood essentially look like slightly worse than doing nothing at all? Because it was slightly worse. Well, the resource, the fuel we need to reframe our experiences in a positive light, like, oh, that's not so bad, or look on the bright side, or reframe it and see the good. All of these are great things to do, but they are very much relying on attention to do that reframing and um, kind of recalibrating in our own mind. When your attentional fuel is depleted because you are under high stress, you're sort of like trying to... Um, you know, you've emptied the gas tank and you're now trying to still eke out any fuel left to expend more energy to do these things. So it's working against you because you don't have the right tools to be able to engage those strategies appropriately. And so mindfulness, which did not have that depleting quality, but actually kept people stable and steady over high stress, does not require attention to be used in that way. And in fact, it builds attention. It strengthens attention instead of using it for the purposes of changing mood. So that's how we got some of these insights that, you know, all, all approaches aren't equal. And under certain circumstances, you might want to avoid uh, those, those kinds of strategies that may require your attention. And you you talk about the positive training that it's it's basically exhausting to us. And like people yeah. that go through, they think if they push away negative thoughts or bad thoughts that that's a way of dealing it with it. But I, you're very honest. You talk about when you started doing this yourself that in the beginning you actually felt worse. Um, and what caused that? Talk about you know. In, <laughs> that's that's very you know. If you're trying to sell something, you usually don't admit that. But I think it's important for people to know. <laughs> well, first of all, I'm not selling anything because I didn't make up these practices. Mindfulness has been around for millennia, right? When I was referencing my upbringing, I mean, these have been around for thousands of years. All I have done 
and I do take a lot of pride in that work, is brought the lens of neuroscience to exploring how these ancient wisdom traditions may be beneficial to our lives. So yes, it is an odd thing to do if I were in an entrepreneurial mode, but I think it gives us insight into what this practice is. So when we start paying attention to our lives, and that's what happens with mindfulness training, I became more present-centered. The button was on play much more often. So when difficulty and challenge and the clinched jaw or the tense neck or the wringing of my hands, the feeling of the pit in my stomach when difficult circumstances arose, I wasn't blind to that anymore. I was seeing it. I was feeling it. I had a front row seat to my experience. And it was because I was being, being able to pay attention. I wasn't lost in, in the rumination or I wasn't lost in the catastrophizing or in some fantasy about how I wish it would be. I was really there. And that can lead that lead to that realization of like, oh gosh, this is, this is not good. But what you soon, soon realize is that that's been there all along. Uh, and one of the things that I reveal in the book is that, you know, the, the kind of my journey with all of this, why I be, went from being a skeptic to trying to open up to new possibilities, um, is that I had lost feeling in my teeth from grinding. I mean, it was pretty bad when I was so checked out that I was just pushing and pushing and pushing successfully in the outward world. But the internal landscape was crumbling to the point where I was having physical symptoms. Waking up to the amount of, of physical, um, you know, manifestations of stress in my body, though it was uncomfortable, it was the only point of power to start changing things. So even at the micro level, if I'm more aware of an anxious thought leading me to clinch my jaw, I could say, ah, look at that, anxiety. Oh, notice that, body sensation. Maybe, maybe see if I can just kind of loosen up a bit. Or, or, or pay attention in a way that wouldn't grow the feeling of anxiety further, meaning fuel the fire of my own anxiety through proliferating thoughts over and over again, building a story of how this is the worst moment ever and I will never recover from this. Maybe questioning that and saying, in this moment, what is actually occurring? Oh, you know, you got a rejection for this paper you were working on, or there's a challenge with a colleague. It becomes a, a really useful way when you stay in play to de-escalate the catastrophizing our mind is so capable of and is such a common thing uh, that we all do sort of by default. We start opening up to those tendencies of mind and then start empowering ourselves to consider doing it in a different way. Yeah. So in that way, it, feeling it all in the moment is is healthier than storing it and fixating it, whether you realize you are or not later on. Um, and you talk about that over and over, being present. I like that you admit how skeptical you are. A lot of uh, the skeptics in the book are some generals and soldiers that you encounter. And just like these, the soldiers, lawyers are a very skeptical group and you offer a lot of hard evidence. One of my favorite ones are um, is in the past, you talk about we've been told that our brains are hardwired. This was interesting to me because about the physical changes. Um, so you give this example in the book of how a repeated task can physically change a person's brain. You talk about the differences that were found in the brains of cab drivers versus bus drivers. Can you just briefly talk about that? <laughs> yeah, this is now a classic, classic study in the field of neuroscience because it was such a profound demonstration of neuroplasticity. So the idea was that there is this part of the brain called the hippocampus. Of course, the story is more complicated, but I'll try to just make it so it's, I don't want to put everybody to sleep getting into the neuroanatomy <laughs> here. So there is this part of the brain that we know is tied to spatial maps. And um, the more we engage this part of the brain, 
um, the more there's activity uh, with it when we when we actually have to keep spatial maps of of physical places, right? So uh, I live in Miami. It's like keeping the grid of Miami in in mind. I don't live in Philadelphia anymore. I was a professor at Penn, so I had a whole decade of actually uh, having the grid of, of Philly in mind. When when I don't use that grid, it's not as available to me. So if I if I was plopped in the middle of Philly, maneuvering from point A to point B would be more difficult. So the prediction was, if you actually work with people, professionals, who have to keep maps, physical maps in mind to maneuver and do their job, well, does it actually keep the neurons in that region of the brain more active? And does the repeated engagement of neural activity lead to structural changes that might even look like, kind of like working out a muscle, stronger, healthier, even bigger in size? That was the question. And so um, some of the early work had said, what about having people that are cab drivers? They have to keep maps in mind. Let's compare them to regular people. And surprisingly, it was the case that cab drivers actually had larger hippocampi than non-cab drivers. And so that was really interesting. It's like, okay, keeping spatial maps in mind, you know, most of us don't have to do that for our job. Um, Now, none of us really have to do that because we've got GPSs and they got to do a follow-up study now of what happens with offloading into GPS and just following it. But anyway, they didn't have that in the early days of this work. So they compared um, normal, regular people that aren't cab drivers to cab drivers and found this beneficial effect to the brain. And it seemed to be tied to their experience because the longer they were cab drivers, the more proliferated this part of the brain was. So then they said, really, is it just the map itself? There's other people that might hold maps in mind um, or actually follow maps like bus drivers. And bus drivers, yes, they have to hold maps in mind, but usually it's the same exact route over and over again. There's no flexible use. They don't get to decide one day, I think I'm not going to go down this road. I'll just take a different way. That would obviously mess up all their passengers uh, waiting for the bus to arrive. So that was a really cool comparison because it was saying both professionals have driving in common. They have holding maps in in mind common, but only the group that has to hold the map in mind flexibly and use it and call upon it in this uh, rigorous and rich way was the one that benefited in terms of brain, uh, brain, basically gray matter density in that region. And so that was an inspiring study because it suggested that this is something the brain is capable of. It's tied to experience. How can we translate that into exercising the brain for other functions, not just holding spatial maps? And that's what the field of neuroscience is now tackling with my subfield, contemplative neuroscience, looking at practices like mindfulness training and seeing how they might change circuits and networks and specific regions of the brain to potentially make them stronger and healthier. And the data is looking quite good that long-term practitioners and even short-term practitioners, as little as eight weeks, are starting to show indications of of transformed, healthier-looking nodes in their brain tied to attention. And so we've talked about all the evidence. And if if there's I encourage people to read the book so that they can really see the studies. But let's talk a little bit about what you found works, what the practice looks like. And so a lot of people are going to say, well, I don't have a good attention span. It's modern technology, all these distractions. But you explain that it's not the case. Um, And I like that uh, 
the way that you can communicate these ideas um, with pictures that are easy for anyone to understand. So you equate the, a person's attention to a flashlight in, a, in the book, that they can choose to point their flashlight in a particular direction. Can you talk about um, how different situations call for a flashlight versus a floodlight, how we're manipulating our attention in that way and how we can? Yeah, absolutely. And you know, I completely understand if people are like, yeah, it's modern life. It's the phone. It's the 24-7, especially, you know, with the demanding professional life. It certainly feels like there's, it's a losing battle. <laughs> why, why, my attention is, is, is really uh, shot. And, you know, and working with so many different kinds of groups, if I ask people to raise their hands, like who thinks that they've got full access to their capacity? Like not a hand goes up. There's not a single group of professionals where everybody feels like they're at the top of their game uh, with attention. And when you ask questions regarding why, this comes up often. Well, aren't attention spans shrinking because of modern technology? And the first thing I want to say is no, they are not. The scale of brain change is not at the scale at which smartphones have been around not even 20 years. So the human capacity to pay attention is unchanged and smartphone technology has not shifted that. But it certainly feels like it. It certainly feels like attention is not what it used to be. And we might, if we're older, long for those days when you weren't getting pinged every five minutes and weren't available at every moment of your life. But your brain is not altered. And one kind of humbling thing that I, I do talk about in the book was that um, there was this really funny, uh, to my mind, as an attention researcher, uh, piece written by or uh, capturing the the story of medieval monks. So way before there was any technology. And these people had left their regular lives to become monastics, devote their life to God. And they were complaining because there was so much going on in their lives and their minds that even during prayer, they were thinking about lunch. And they were getting really irritated. Like, why can't my mind just stay on the thing that I want it to be on? You know, I've, I've made these extraordinary decisions of how I want to conduct my life and the mind is not cooperating. We're still that same brain. They were still, you know, they were that brain. Uh, the mind is built for distractibility. Um, and this is this notion of 50% of our waking moments, our attention is not in the task at hand. So that is the nature of the mind. And knowing that, and there are many good evolutionary reasons why the mind is built this way. I mean, very easily, one, one way to think about it is if you were so capable of focus that you were not attentive and, and kind of cycling your attention to what's happening in your environment, probably you'd be eaten <laughs> if in those uh, <laughs> right. early ancestor days, right? I'm so fixated on what I'm doing, or I'm picking the berry and I don't notice the storm approaching or the predator lurking, whatever it is. So having this kind of pliable distractible mind served us. And it, and it frankly still serves us. But the challenge is also real. So I'm not trying to say technology isn't posing a challenge, but I want to explain what is likely happening uh, based on what we know from the research. And you already mentioned one of the metaphors of attention is that it is like a flashlight. And I, and I really mean that. Um, you know, this flashlight notion is, is if we look at the brain, when people pay attention to something, it is crisper, clearer, and in the visual domain, if you're paying attention to something visually, it's as if the um, the, the illumination of the, of the dot you might be looking on the screen is brighter. If it were in the auditory domain, it's as if when you pay attention, the sound is louder. So attention amplifies the sensory input that we have. And it's just like a flashlight in a darkened room. Wherever we direct that flashlight, we get crisper, clearer information. And very much like a flashlight, 
um, we can point it where we want it to be. And that helps guide us. If you're on a darkened path, it's going to be really handy to point it to where uh, you're walking so you don't trip over anything and you can keep yourself guided to move forward. But if you're on that same darkened path and you hear, to, hear a weird noise behind you, it's very likely that you're going to flip that flashlight to where you thought the sound was from, coming from, so you can see was what is that? You know, is that a was it rustling? What was it? Was it a raccoon or was it something else that I need to be concerned about? So that capacity to direct the flashlight is very powerful, but getting yanked by external stimulation is very powerful. So in some sense, the cell phone in our modern day, te modern day technology is like that rustling in the bushes. It is pulling us towards something that may be novel, potentially self-related, uh, potentially uh, alarming or threatening. You know, think about what happens when we get a cell phone notification. It's not a gentle hum of a harp, usually. It's like something that's like, zzz, you know, it's like, pay attention to me. And we do. And it's because that system is working strong and well that we do. So just to know that it's not something intrinsically problematic with our brain, but that the brain and attention is being utilized in a way that it's frankly, these technologies are designed to do. Um, and social media in some sense um, is, you know, our, the commodity that's for sale is our attention. We live in an attention economy. So that might explain the pain point. And there are ways we can relate to um, our current moment better so that we're not in such a fight. And by the way, I do do not recommend that people decide to break up with their phones or, you know, forget it. In the legal profession, if you say, I'm just not going to pay attention to my phone, um, good luck. You know, it's not going to happen. So we've got to figure out a more useful way. And what I suggest builds on that second system that of attention that you described. It's not only about the flashlight because attention is not one thing. It's actually probably three things. Um, the flashlight represents this orienting function of narrowing and selecting. But the second system, which I think we can use to our advantage and cultivate with mindfulness, is something I call the floodlight. And that's something we could broadly say is the opposite of a flashlight. It's not about narrowing and selecting. It's about being broad and receptive, like a floodlight. I mean, I've got a floodlight above my garage. It's like anytime there's any motion, boom, it goes on. It's paying attention to what's happening in this moment, and it's keeping attention at the ready. So for people to kind of visualize this, think about the last time you were driving or walking and you see a flashing yellow light, maybe near a construction site or something like that. The way you make your mind in that moment, because that, that signal, that visual signal is saying, pay attention, but it's not asking you to pay attention like a flashlight. It's saying, be broadly alert and aware of what's going on around you. Survey your environment. Why? Because I don't, the, the flashlight is saying, having this conversation with you, I don't know what you're going to need your attention for, but you better have it ready, right? Whether it's school children or construction equipment or a strange traffic pattern, have attention at the ready. So one thing we can do when it comes to our, our technology, and I'm, I'm weaving this technology piece in because I think it's just a common pain point, is instead of saying we're going to break up with our phone, let's advantage that second system, which is the awareness system. And Let's have a real aware relationship with our technology. You know, when the zzz of the cell phone uh, text coming in arises, notice, ah, my flashlight is being yanked right now. I'm going to take action. I'm going to actually pick up the phone, you know, put my password in or have my face ID, uh, unlock an app, check the app or read the text on the screen. These are all things that we typically do so fast and with so little awareness 
they were already not only checking the app, but then scrolling through Facebook or Instagram or buying, you know, the next thing on our, on the website without our knowledge, like we're asleep to it. But now if we bring our attention to our engagement with technology, we have so many more choice points. You know, the first is when we hear that, that ping, we can decide whether we're even going to, if it's required that we pick it up or not. It's not a ballistic autopilot response. It's an engaged response that we're we're willful participants in. We're owning our attention in that moment. So I appreciate you letting me talk about some of these systems of attention because it is complicated, but in some sense, it's what's already occurring. And knowing how these different factors are at play can empower us, uh, especially if we train the mind with something like mindfulness training, uh, to use these systems better. And so you make the point, it's all about attention. And I love the the metaphor of your little dog looking out the window, barking at every car and pedestrian going by. <laughs> That's what I keep picturing myself as this tiny dog. So um, it's that your dog seeing that and being distracted over and over is exactly like a person letting all the distractions derail their attention. So how does a person begin to um, stop letting the distractions derail them in their mindfulness training? Because so many people will say, I tried meditation, it doesn't work. And I, 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 part of me wants to say, this isn't even meditation because you've made it, it's more like if your doctor said, I want you to ride your Peloton 20 minutes a day, you've made it that clean. But how can a person begin if they've had, you know, not a lot of success with this before. How can they start to use the mindfulness training to create what you call a river of thought? Yeah, yeah. Um, well, first of all, let me just kind of demystify the term meditation because I too had that kind of like, no, or not for me. Uh, as a neuroscientist, and now I really am speaking from the sort of brain training perspective, the term meditation is like an, is an umbrella term like the term sports is describing a broad category that comes from the world's wisdom traditions. And really what it means is engaging in specific mental practices to cultivate specific mental qualities. It's like doing something for some response. Now, we call it meditation because of its history, but frankly, a brain training app is the same thing, engaging in certain mental practices to cultivate some specific mental qualities. With mindfulness, the, the quality we're aiming to cultivate is present-centered attention. So keeping that button on play, as we, we've been talking about, and doing so can be really, really helpful because we're more present to our lives and we're orienting to our experience in this non-judgmental or non-evaluative way. We're being more of a reporter instead of a storyteller about our life. We're getting the raw data uh, versus imposing what we think is happening onto what's going on. So it's it's paying attention in a particular way. Anyway, so mindfulness meditation all of a sudden is not this woo-woo thing, but it's just, oh, okay, it's brain training. And the thing I'm training to do is pay attention to present moment experience in this non-reactive way. Okay, got it. Now, what do I do for that? Yes, there is a training plan in the same way that, you know, if you wanted to strengthen your your core or your uh, leg muscles, you do specific things. Um, and And different forms of meditation are cultivating different things. Compassion meditation, aiming to do something very different than mindfulness meditation. It's not about present-centered attention. It's about really connecting with the suffering of other people or Christian contemplative prayer or Sufi or whatever. You know, you can go around the world's wisdom traditions and pick out these things that people are doing with a very specific purpose in mind, but they all fall into that broad category. Like, like sports, being a gymnast is very different than be being a volleyball player, but we get the general idea that you need specific training. So I just wanted to say that because I think it's helpful to not be so concerned about the term. It's, it's actually just know what you're actually doing. Um, 
And when it comes to, um, you know, the other part of, of, of what you're asking, which is, well, I can't do it that well. Like, how do I, my mind is just too busy. Um, <laughs> the first thing to say is it's a myth to think that you will ever clear your mind. That if you think you're a failure at meditation or mindfulness meditation because you can't clear your mind, uh, no, you're just human. And if 50% of our waking moments is the mind doing this mental chatter, welcome to your human experience. Forget the project uh, of of stopping that. It's not going to be a fruitful project. And yes, you will feel like a failure if you attempt to do that. So instead, the project is not to stop mind wandering, but to become aware of it. And one of the practices that is offered in the book, I actually call the find your flashlight practice. And I did it exactly for that reason. Most people think the goal of mindfulness may be direct the flashlight, have it unwavering, point to the thing it's supposed to go at, uh, like body sensations or the breath, and it should not move. And if it moves, you're a failure. And what I wanted to do is flip that on its head and say, no, you pick an anchoring object. In this case, when you're doing a mindfulness practice, it's, it can be breath-related sensations, But in our regular lives, and maybe the report we're writing or the conversation we're having, we're always going to have some anchoring thing we want to direct to when we want to be focused in what we're doing. So the intention is to direct the flashlight, but then to notice where the flashlight is moment by moment. So it's focusing as the first step, but noticing. And when you notice that your mind is away from the thing you want it on, that is a moment of success. And it should be a little win that you get like, aha, I found my flashlight. I know where it is because only when you know where your attention is, do you have any agency to redirect it as you like. So it's in that moment of, of noticing you've wandered away to the thought and you're nowhere near thinking about your breath, your busy mind has taken over that you could say, yep, wandered away. Now I'm back. So it's essentially three steps. Focus, which is that flashlight. Notice, which is like that floodlight or that flashing yellow light when you're walking down the street, and then redirect, get back to the goal, um, or choose a different goal if it's not the thing you want to do. And that that applies to the training regime, which is the mindfulness exercises, as well as applying those to our actual life. And I like that. I think a lot of people are picturing um, they need to go sit in a lotus position in a room on a mat. And I'm starting with baby steps. So from your book, here's what I'm doing right now. When I'm brushing my teeth, I'm noticing my focus. So like in that set amount of time, I know how to brush my teeth, so I don't have to pay attention to that. But I can do some of the exercises, some of the core uh, training that you suggest. But then you also mention that mind wandering can be good. So maybe when you're in the shower, you completely let your mind wander and it's kind of like a brain relaxation situation. So you can start wherever you're at. And I like that that you make it that way. Um, I also, because this, you just, this book just came out in October. So you, it's cutting edge. And I want to just touch on, because just like people kept recommending your book to me, um, the subject of adult ADHD came up and then I'm in your book and then you bring that up. And I was like, oh my gosh. So Some of the research on ADHD and mindfulness, um, the diagnosis has become much more common for adults, and it looks so different in in adult women than we think about like a little kid jumping around on furniture. It looks so different. And a lot of times they've been told that they're depressed or anxious. So whether you're on meds, you're not on meds, can mindfulness training assist with ADHD symptoms? What are you seeing? Yes. (laughs) And um, (laughs) it can. And here's what's sort of interesting. 
It's the same system of attention. So oftentimes, if the flashlight gets stuck on depressogenic thought, it is going to present as depression. If if uh, attention is so broad and receptive, like a flashing yellow light in your whole life, it presents as anxiety. Both of those mental states really disable being able to put the flashlight or the floodlight and use it in the way that you want. So the presentation of ADHD is very much tied to the overuse and dysfunctional hijacking of attention. And yes, mindfulness training can be helpful, whether it's a clinically, you know, promulgated uh, state of attention, or we just have ADD-like features because the nature of our lives, we feel scattered, unable to hold on to goals, like we're in a cognitive fog with a slight sense of sort of dysphoria and dysregulation in our mood. Um, and so I would say more so than worrying so much about whether you have a clinical diagnosis or not, but you know, do what you need to do. The features of what presents are problematic and unpleasant. And what we want is tools to help us feel more functional in our lives. And because we're targeting the key systems of attention to strengthen the flashlight, to notice where attention is redirected back, we start again having more agency in the way we deal with ruminative content that arises in our minds. Um, or we notice, ah, I'm really uh, in a hypervigilant mode now. I'm really fast forwarding. I actually don't need to be. And all these doomsday scenarios I've just created in my mind. I actually don't know. I'm dealing with uncertainty right now. I mean, these are just little snapshots of I mean, my own life experience. But what we've found in our studies and now this growing field is that when you take adults that are presenting with clinical symptoms of ADD and offering them mindfulness training practices – they benefit. Their attention is uh, more stable and steady, and their mind wandering can get dialed down. It's not as prominent because oftentimes with ADD, it's more than 50% that the mind wandering happens, which by the way, is exactly what we see when we look at high stress circumstances. People tend to mind wander more. And just to pick up on what you said a moment ago, you know, I use the term mind wandering very specifically. It's it's not a good thing to do. It's It actually means off-task thoughts during an ongoing task. What you do in the shower is actually not mind-wandering, just to be technical about it. It's, let's use a different word, okay. mental meandering or, ah, or you know, okay. you're, you're, you're in this tiny wet box, just enjoy yourself. Like just <laughs> smell the beauty, you know, the, the soap, feel the, the, the water on your skin, like be there for it and let the mind go wherever it will. There is no other task that your mind needs to be engaged in, in some sense. So let the mind go anywhere it will. And yes, for sure, doing that is very beneficial, but only when there's no other task that's competing with where you need to put your attention. So that's an important distinction to keep in mind. Don't miss those moments of mental meandering, because frankly, what typically will happen, like think about the last time you were at a grocery store and a checkout line or waiting anywhere, that is a perfect opportunity. You're standing there. There's nothing else really required of you in that moment, but there's no way we're going to stand there. We're going to have our phone out and we're doing 50 things. <laughs> so really, you can do that, of course. And, you know, it's good to be efficient with your time, but test it out. See what happens if you just leave the phone in your purse or your pocket and let the mind be. See where it goes and let it go wherever it will, um, because those are recouping um, real agency for your own mind and, frankly, your generative thought. You're probably going to come up with some very cool and useful ideas if you just let the mind meander. 
Yes. I love, I come up with brilliant ideas in the shower. So I'm trying to make the most of that. Yeah. Um, yeah. So you talk about doing the core practices in 12 minutes a day. So very little requirement, but it seems like an eternity when you're trying to learn these. So we're talking about baby steps and you go through that in the book. And so my last question, so in that same 12 minutes a day, um, right now in the mental health world, world, the new buzzword is resilience. Can having a mindfulness practice make us more resilient? Yes. (laughs) Yes. <laughs> and, um, you know, but I just want to be cautious because, yes, it's a buzzword, but sometimes people hate it. I remember I gave a talk at the State Department yeah. and they're like, you can talk about whatever you want, but if you say the word resilient, people are going <laughs> to scream at you. I'm like, oh, my goodness. Noted. We'll not use that term. But here's the thing. What does resilience mean? You know, it comes from sort of like material science, like the, the way a spring can bounce back. It's this this notion of intrinsic return to a prior state. So if you think about our own lives, being resilient means um, we have the capacity to regain something that's been lost through a period of challenge. And that's really powerful. And yes, mindfulness training can, can, can help us bounce back. But more so than that, if we train our mind over high stress intervals or prior, we can be what I call presilient. So we don't have to wait for us ourselves to be degraded and then bounce back. We just don't degrade or decline in our attention. We stay stable and steady even though the challenges are increasing because we've cultivated our capacity to withstand those challenges by, in some sense, mentally armoring our attention uh, through training. Perfect. I've just written down presilient. That is the goal. Excellent. Well, uh, it looks like we've reached the end of our program. Thank you so much for taking the time out of your busy day to join us, Dr. Amishi Jha. Uh, we really appreciate it. Absolutely. This was a lot of fun. If our listeners have questions, they want to learn more about starting their own mindfulness practice, where can they find those resources? They can find me easily if they remember my first name, Amishi, A-M-I-S-H-I.com. And they can learn about the book and all of our uh, research with actually a new group of people we're working with is legal professionals. Oh, wow. That Okay. Breaking news right here. Thank you. <laughs> if you like what you heard today, please rate us an Apple podcast. Join us next time for another episode of the Florida Bar's Legal Fuel podcast brought to you by the Practice Resource Center of the Florida Bar. I'm Christine Bilberry. Until next time, thank you for listening. If you'd like more information about today's show, please visit LegalFuel.com. Don't miss an episode by subscribing to the Florida Bars podcast via iTunes, Google Podcasts, Spotify, and RSS. Find the Florida Bars Practice Resource Center Legal Fuel on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram. The views expressed by the participants of this program are their own and do not represent the views of, nor are they endorsed by the Florida Bar. None of the content should be considered legal advice. As always, consult a lawyer.